Hello, and welcome to EPR with your favorite environmental nerds, Nick and Laura. On today's episode, Nick and I discuss a recruiter's role during the hiring process. We talk to Clinton Johnson about equity, nonprofits, and Doctor Who. And finally, it's impossible to burp in space. Oh, thanks for this one, Nick. On Earth, gravity pulls liquids and solids to the bottom of our digestive system, which allows gases to rise where they can be forced back out as a burp. Since there is no gravity in space, that can't happen in space. Instead, the air, food, and liquids in your stomach are all floating together like (laughs) chunky bubbles. (laughs) None of you were hungry just about now. So if you ever find yourself blasted out of an airlock without a spacesuit on, take comfort in the fact that you won't let out an embarrassing belch at the wrong moment. (laughs) I love this one. I know you do. Hit that music. NAEP is now accepting abstracts for the 2023 Annual Conference and Training Symposium in Phoenix, Arizona from May 7th to 10th, 2023. Showcase your work to an audience of national and Arizona environmental professionals at its 2023 conference. Abstracts can be submitted for oral presentations, posters, workshops, and special sessions on national and of national and Arizona concern. Abstracts are due by September 30th, 2022. Please check it out at www.naep.com. Org. We appreciate all of our sponsors and they will keep the show going. If you'd like to sponsor the show, please head on over to www.environmentalprofessionalsradio.com and check out the sponsor form for details. Let's get to our segment. Um, you guys have a recruiter? Yeah. Yeah. We got a whole recruiting team. Yeah. So they're okay. sifting through all the resumes so I don't have to. And, you know, even yeah. that's a little challenging sometimes because they'll miss some. So, you know, we have to go through, but we got the more you do it, the better relationship you have with the recruiter, the better it gets. It's right. Yeah. It's nice. Actually. We have a good one that I worked with on this. Do they do the negotiations too? It depends. It typically we're involved because they just don't know anything about the positions other than this is what we think this position is worth. And then they can, they can kind of lead that. And then we go back and forth that way so that they don't, it kind of keeps us from being like, you will work for this amount or not, you know, kind of thing. So they'll actually talk to them about it. Yeah. Just a question that some people ask me when they're looking for jobs is, you know, should I, who should I reach out to and should I hire a recruiter? And I know a recruiter working for you is not the same as hiring a recruiter for themselves, but right. you know, everybody wants to know, like, what is the recruiter's role? So what is the recruiter's role in like a hiring process at a, at a company or do you mean for an individual? Both. I mean, they don't, nobody knows, you know what I mean? It's like, there's this mysterious person called a recruiter. <laughs> Why would I want to be in touch with one? <laughs> and there are, there are so, ones who are freelance and work for themselves that, you know, you can, as a career seeker, you could reach out to, or there are recruiters who are hired by companies who are more like headhunters, right? you know, working on their behalf. Right. So I guess for us, there's, um, you know, there's a couple of different things that they do. They do all of those things. But for us, for our projects, for our jobs, when we have a requisition that we want, you know, hey, Amber, this is the the new job we have. This is what we're looking for in a candidate. And, you know, I want to put this out. This is, and and she'll be like, Nick, I tell you a thousand times, please fill out the form. And, you know, so that we can talk about this kind of stuff, you know? And so we, we have a system for how we do this. That's actually, it's not just a form. It's a series of forms, really. So we, to, to get all that information, like, you know, what's the job description? What are we going to be doing on a daily day basis? Is there travel? All this other stuff, right? You know, this, that, and the other. And then they will post it 
on the, all of the job boards. They'll post it on LinkedIn. And so if you saw my LinkedIn, I shared that job out. And they are also, you know, we'll just start, we'll start getting resumes and they will sift through those resumes, send me people. They'll set up the interviews like, hey, do you want to interview this person? I say yes or no. They will set up the interview, do all the logistical stuff. So all I have to do up is show up with my my pretty face, smile, talk, you know, conduct the interview. I usually we usually do that with like three people. So I'll even tell the recruiter, hey, we want these three people to be on this interview. And I tend to do that. I have a team, like our team's great. I really do love who we work with. I know it sounds, I really do genuinely mean that. It's easy to say, but like for the hiring process, right? Like I'm a very excitable person. When I see somebody and meet someone that I like, I get really excited about it. I know, I see this all the time on the podcast. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Um, but, but I always have somebody who's more even keel. I don't want to say a Laura type, but you guys have similarities, actually, the person that I usually have on interviews with me because she's much more like, logical matter of fact you know and so if i'm really excited and she's like no red flags i'm like okay all right that's good we both agree we have different levels of agreement but we both agree and so then the recruiter will work with that person like hey look we're interested in hiring you i have to develop an offer letter they send that offer letter out so i pick the salary they send it out and then if there's a back and forth on salary uh, the recruiter will work on that end so i don't i don't specifically work through salary with that person but usually it's not that complicated. Usually it's just like, Hey, this is what we think you're worth. And then the person will say, yeah, that works for me. Or maybe a little bit more. No one ever says last money. It's very funny how that, <laughs> um, but yeah, that's kind of how we do it. And so that's the recruiter's role on, on that end for me. And then otherwise, like you said, you can have them go out to trade shows to try to find people that way. Well, they'll take like a list of, Hey, these are the jobs that Dawson has open. Come talk to us about them. And they'll, they'll have 10, 15, 20, whatever it is. And if that works for you at a trade show or at a conference or whatever it is, and you give them your resume or, you know, get contact info and work through that way. There's lots of different things they do. Cool. Is that me explaining? <laughs> no, I think that the people listening don't, don't know that, you know what I mean? Especially early job seekers, any job seekers. I think it's, that's good info. <laughs> um Sam is funny to herself. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. And I, I would say too, like for the recruiter role, like if you're like, should I talk to recruiters or the person who's hiring? The person who's hiring is far more important on for you getting the job, but you might not be able to get to them without the recruiter. So they're both important people. Obviously, whoever's hiring is going to be the person that makes that decision. But again, if you want to reach that person, sometimes that's the easiest way to do it. That's a good point. You know, and if you pitch the, you have to kind of pitch the recruiter to a degree. Um, you know, hey, this is a job I'm interested in. I have these qualifications. I would love to set up an interview. And, you know, good recruiters will be able to say, okay, Nick told me what he's looking for. This looks like what he's looking for. I have keywords that I'm searching for, key components that I'm looking for. This is it. So, sure. Awesome. That's good stuff. Let's get to our interview. Sounds good. Hello, and welcome back to EPR. Today, we have Clinton Johnson on the show. Clinton is the Racial Equity and Social Justice Solutions Lead at Esri, the global market leader in GIS mapping and technology, and the founder and leader of North Star of GIS, a 501c3 nonprofit working to create a more racially just world through more racially just GIS, geography, and STEM fields. Welcome, Clinton. Thanks for having me, Nick. 
Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about your career path and when you started learning GIS and how you ended up at Esri? That's a really interesting question. And it always takes a different angle every time I think I answer it. But um, (laughs) I started working at the city of Philadelphia in the 1990s in an engineering role. And I used to, as a hobby, I was, I would program, I would like write code for fun at home. And then I saw opportunities to do some of that at work. And the world just looked, started to look like data to me. So I would, I would turn the things that we were doing. And I was in the highways division for the streets department. We were permitting the use and occupancy of the public right away. So I started to look at all of that stuff as data in some way that I could code around to make things more efficient. And that data that a lot of the, you know, the, the right of way, it's, it was a geographic element that the city managed. And someone said to me at some point, have you heard of GIS? There's this, you know, there's these people <laughs> who work downstairs and, um, you know, you might be really interested in, in this GIS thing. Because everything that you're doing is about geography. And I had not made a single map. I used maps that were already made all the time, but I, I had not contributed to the creation of a single map. And at that point, it was really hard. It was really hard to make maps. I want to say even in the late 90s at the city of Philadelphia, the network was, I will say it was trash. I think everyone would agree. <laughs> it, yeah. It went down, yeah, yeah, it was. It went down, <laughs> it went down many times a day. and. I just couldn't understand why people were doing this. Like, why would you even spend so much of your day trying to pull data from one department to the next and make a map that maybe it's going to take you half a day to produce, but, you know, have fun. But there was something about the community that was interesting to me. Every time I've ever interacted with GIS people, they've been such a consistent and in some ways cohesive community and, and all of them seem to feel like all of the communities and and the people who sort of gravitate toward them seem to feel like they are here to do something great in the world, you know, make the world better. And so when I got my first invitation to a GIS role, it was to be the city of Philadelphia's first geodatabase administrator. It was kind of the title was kind of made up around the, this new concept of geodatabases taking geography and putting them into databases and given geography, all the benefits of a, of a database. And that made sense to me because it was so hard before to pull all this data into one place. And so now I could help put it all into one place and manage that one repository. And later I got back to some of the coding roots and I was the city's second GIS programmer and the first to sort of take that role and make it be more about application architecture and helping all of the city's departments figure out how they could more strategically apply GIS to the work that they did. And I would say from there, everything else in my career included highly recommending that people take from the benefits of GIS and bring them into their work. I think sort of the pinnacle for me at the city of Philadelphia was becoming the first chief enterprise architect officer. And and enterprise architecture is fancy language for saying this obvious thing. Hey, let's make sure that everything that we're doing with technology has a business purpose, a business <laughs> purpose that aligns with our strategy. And as much as it would seem that that organizations, you know, spending millions of dollars on technology would, of course, do that. Nah, 
the technologists <laughs> sometimes just rule. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. if you think a piece of tech is cool, then you know you sort of can make the case for it. And maybe that piece of tech is dangling over here, mm. doing some interesting things off on its own, but it's not contributing anyway. So GIS just always seemed to me like this glue that could bring our data together, data about people and our activities with people and the assets that we managed for people, you know, together and with apps wrapped around that, you know, drive action more effectively. And then from there, I ended up at Esri, which was sort of like a dream job earlier in my GIS career. And that is a version of the story I will tell today. <laughs> I got to step in for a second because you ended up at Esri. Esri is in Redlands, California. You are in Philadelphia. How did you just end up at Esri? <laughs> you know, what? I thought I thought that too. And even even though I've been working with Esri for my whole GIS career, and what did that mean? That meant you know watching them grow a Philadelphia office that was still kind of small, and having some sense of awareness of the other offices, but it still felt like you know Esri was in California and do I want to leave Philadelphia and go to California? And even though San Diego, where the big conference is, it's like, feels like paradise that week that I'm out there every single year. Yeah. Um, I like, I like the four seasons that Philly offers. Um, yeah. But while half of, half of Esri is in Redlands for sure. The other half is scattered across the country in several different offices. And I just, I'm able to be positioned. I was able to, to work out of one office and some of us, actually work remote. And we've been, some of us have been working remote a bit before the pandemic, but now with the pandemic, while we have home offices in different locations, again, I'm one of the, the people who who works remote. Yeah, I got you. Yeah. And I love, I love your point too about technology. It is, it is funny because there are times where companies are like, oh my, look at this laser. Isn't it neat? And you're like, yeah, but we, we make tennis balls. What are you doing? You know? And it's like, uh, it has to happen a lot, but you get to work with lots of different projects in lots of different areas. So like, what are some of those projects that you actually, that you work on or that you have worked um, on? You like? I've worked on things like being the city's sort of web, city of Philadelphia's webmaster. And through that opportunity, trying to get GIS plugged into some of the, the capabilities that different departments make available online. I'm just going to sort of like move through the career before Esri was offering web services and, and taking its tech and making it more accessible and available to developers. I helped to design and oversee the implementation of the city of Philadelphia's first web services deployment that was used by many agencies. And that was completely focused on GIS, making it easy for people to pull geocoding into things like any of their core business apps or Excel spreadsheets helping folks to go from an address to a meaningful city asset and laying a foundation for making it a lot easier for folks to just turn around applications in a, in a much more cost-effective way. At the city, I also worked on projects like the second phase, I want to say, of the city's 311 implementation. And again, callers are calling in to talk about something happening in the city about a thing that's in the city. And most of those things are assets managed by a city agency. So I thought it was really important to, again, bring GIS into that so that when you get that call, you can have a conversation with the person on the other end, find that asset in our system using a map because maybe someone rode by 
a pothole or rode by a down stoplight. And all they can remember is it was at this intersection. I think there was a church there. And, and, you know, with information like that, we wanted people who received those calls to be able to find it on the map. And there's just a, a number of other apps I've helped to either influence or, or work on directly. And at and at Esri, I have the benefit of moving from from organization to organization, largely helping them design strategies for how they're going to take advantage of all of the GIS capabilities that they already have towards their missions. And from the first encounter I had with a customer at Esri to the last, every single one of those customers, and now it, it makes more, it will make more sense why they do today, but every single one of those customers in my first three and a half years had expressed interest in using GIS to tackle some challenge related to equity. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes they were very explicit in saying things like, and I hope one of these customers is listening and, and recognizes themselves in this because it was always like really inspirational to me. You know, I had a, my first customer said, we have a lot of money to spend on equity. We don't have an aging population, but we have increasingly more older people moving into our community to retire. And we want to make sure that our ambulance services, our resp- emergency response services are in the spaces where they may be needed the most. We had customers who would say to us, we're all, our team is, is relatively new to the city. And what we've inherited is a set of, of policies and practices that we know create disparities for people along the lines of race or sexual orientation or gender. And we know that location has something to do with it. You all have lots of location data. Help us find out where our policies are creating racial disparities for our neighborhoods and city. People said these things directly to us. And so now I find myself largely working to to help equity officers and department heads and GIS managers and professionals figure out how to wrap their heads around those issues and figure out how to take advantage of of GIS as a tool set to help them find out where the problems are, find out where the needs are the greatest, and then take action to address them. Yeah. And I think, you know, equity and data is something, you know, some people, when they hear it, that doesn't make a lot of sense, right? They're just like, okay, well, those are two different things. How is the data informing equity? And so I don't know, is, when you see it, obviously it makes sense to you, but how would you explain it to someone else? There's so many different angles to come from with it. And I think like the trickiest part, another thing that people will say is, well, if we say, if we use the data to say that there is racism, isn't that racist? If we use the data to say that there's sexism, isn't that sexist? And in the data that we're talking about using, it's like, oh, characteristics like race, gender, sex assigned at birth, those kinds of things. But what I try to tell people more and more is, well, every organization is a system and systems interact with each other. And we're all, you know, trying to make sure that the systems that communities need to be- need and benefit from are healthy and that there are no external forces operating against them like racism or sexism or homophobia. And so when you think about systems like food systems that are influenced by governments whose policies make it easier or harder for grocery stores to emerge in certain communities and for their prices for their produce to be at a level that is affordable or national policies that may guide or influence how easy it may be for a farm, for food to go from a farm to a convenience store or a restaurant or to someone's table. 
but at the same time, not just government, but, you know, those businesses that decide to, to pop up or, or make decisions about where they should be located are all sort of contributing. And so people sort of get that, okay, so data about that stuff makes sense, but like, what about the equity part or what about the racism part or the sexism part or the socioeconomic inequality part? Well, we don't literally have a lot of data that says this is racism, this is sexism, this is homophobia. There, there are, you know, some organizations who are stood up to do things like map and identify where there are organizations that are organized towards those ends, but that isn't largely what we're working with. So instead, what we have are data about people that can help us understand whether or not groups of people are experiencing things differently. So now when we think about a food system and data about the people who are impacted by food systems, well, now we can ask questions beyond just, well, how is a city doing or how is a neighborhood doing? We can say, well, how are social groups of people doing? You know, we look at who has access to grocery stores that have affordable, fresh produce. We can look at that in terms of, well, what percentage of the population of the black population in a city do or do not have access relative to maybe the percentage of the white population or the Asian population or the Latin American population. And so now with that data about race, we can start to see whether or not there may be systems of oppression at play in our systems that help communities succeed. And when we when we identify those issues, well, now we can do something about it. Now, not only do we know that the city of Philadelphia is dealing with the burdens of climate change and, and heat, we know that certain neighborhoods in the city are dealing with it more so. And we also know that certain communities in terms of race and and or income are, you know, again, much more impacted. So now we can really focus in on the different reasons why those different communities are being impacted differently to get to the point where hopefully we run our, we do the analysis, we ask the data again, is there a difference between how communities are faring? And the goal is to get to no, no, there's yeah. no difference because we, yeah. we've acted. Yeah. Which is really, really incredible. And, um, and we want to touch on Esri's role here too. So you're, you've been the lead, the team lead for the racial and ju- social justice team for two years. So was that team new or did, is that when it started or has it been around for a while? And then like, what are your goals for that team? So in 2018, I started to realize that, well, I told you all the customers are asking equity, 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 racial justice all over the place. The part I didn't mention was that, well, most of the time in those conversations, GIS professionals in a room had sort of the reaction that, that you were describing, Nick. They're thinking, well, that sounds really hard. Racism. It's this thing that maybe is happening in someone's head or heart or, or mind. And when when you all have figured out what you want to do, sure, we'll make a map because what <laughs> could we possibly do about this? Or man, racism. Is that something we're supposed to talk about at work? So for all of these different reasons, the GIS folks would back away from the conversation very often in these conversations. But whenever we would see geographers, GIS people stepping forward, we started to gravitate towards that action and lift those voices up. And that that work really started in 2018. I want to say mid to late 2018. And I got some approval to do some more investigation and to begin to support customers. So it's like me, one other person at the company of Margot Bortney. So we just started to connect with more customers and, and pull their stories into focus. So when we were approaching 
2020 for Esri's user conference, this is like where you really get a sense for what the Esri's GIS community is focused on. Well, we said, hey, can we put a couple of topics into the mix so that when people submit papers, they can maybe think about picking one of these topics. So the topics we proposed were equity and social justice and diversity and inclusion as separate topics. And we got a lot of people submitting. And some of the organizations that typically would submit papers in different topics were now submitting them in this new set of topics. And, and we got approval to host, I want to say it was like five sessions. So we went from zero to five sessions and some other team, five sessions on equity and social justice, two sessions on diversity and inclusion. And a session has two papers each, which meant we had about three times that many papers submitted that we had to, yeah, yeah. We had to weed out. So like that work meant that it was interesting, it was intriguing, and then the pandemic hit and we didn't go in person. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, the pandemic hit and it was this pause and people could sort of stop and see things like racial disparities in COVID-19 that meant that more Black and Latin American people were hospitalized or died than maybe needed to if racism was not a thing. And then again, the pandemic hit and we saw how Asian folks were being treated because the virus itself got racialized. And then the pandemic hit and we saw George Floyd be murdered after a succession of other folks being brutalized or or killed. And enough was kind of enough for Esri. And we formalized a team around the work that we had started in 2018. And while before we we were operating under the sort of heading of equity and social justice, Jack and others started with Jack Dangerman, the um, owner of Esri thought it was important to amplify racial equity. And so we became a racial equity and social justice unified team, unifying efforts across the entire organization to make sure that there are capabilities being generated from products to services to the way that we engage in business development conversations with folks to help people tackle these issues. So effectively, our our goal is in many ways is to make sure that any product you pick up that's going to help you influence decisions, inform decisions that impact people will either have baked within it some capabilities that enable you to apply an equity lens and to advance positive practices for racial justice, or there will be a set of practices defined either in our, our training materials, blog posts, or through solution templates that that help you get there, help you do the same thing, identify and address racial and social injustices. That's awesome. Uh, it's really yeah. good to see Esri taking the lead. And, you know, we need more companies like Esri that are this in- influential to step up and be doing the right things. Jack is amazing. Have you ever met, gotten to meet him? I haven't. I met him in person super briefly when he was on his way to his car. And that was when I was thanking him for providing support for another important initiative. And that was our first ever Black at Esri UC meetup where, you know, for the first time in a special interest group, we invited Black GIS students, professionals, entrepreneurs, educators, and their allies to come together. And, you know, he helped make that happen. So I walked up to him, didn't say who I was. I just thanked him for him. But since then, I've met with him a number of times virtually I won't say we we talk very frequently, but we do talk maybe more often than most people get a chance to to talk to him. Yeah, very cool. I've seen him present several times over the years working with GIS, and he just seems like a really great leader. And you can see it, obviously, through the products and services that 
Esri delivers and how they deliver them. Okay, so you've been doing this a while and you've got all these amazing projects. Are there any that stand out as hot topics or ones that have particularly good results that you want to talk about? I think not necessarily projects that we worked on that I want to lift up, but I, I do want I want to lift up work by Milwaukee County, City and County Milwaukee, where they do a really great job of using GIS to tell the story, to get on the same page with the community about what the issues are on the ground, and then to come up with plans to take action. They do a really great job in that regard. There's the city of Tacoma and so many other cities, Seattle, who do a great job of sort of advocating for the creation of indices to address specific areas. You know, a lot of people think that you can create one view of what problems look like when you think about racial, social, or gender inequities of any kind, socioeconomic, I meant, but they do a good job of building atlases of indices so that you have a collection of maps around a variety of issues. I think all of that work is really great. There are myriad organizations that are starting to bring together AI machine learning to look at imagery to detect things like paving, impervious surfaces, and, and vegetation to then align that information with policies like redlining and land use policies that disproportionately harm communities of color. I think all of that work is really exciting. But the, the thing that I'm probably going to give a lot more attention to in the coming year is finding more and more ways to systematically enable sort of the transformation of community experience as just sort of conversation and things we sort of know anecdotally into data. So helping people take all of the stories that we know about how people feel about the disparities in their communities, the, their experiences when they, you know, it's not, it's one thing to say, you've got hospitals in a community, that community should be fine. It's another thing to understand what happens when, when different people go to the hospital, do they all get served the same way? And, and how do they feel about that? It's one thing to say, here's what, as a city or a GIS professional, what I think the inequities are. It's another thing to understand the community's perspective to see if they validate that perspective. It's one thing to say you've got a great initiative that's serving the community well and everyone's involved. It's another thing to understand the degree to which communities impacted are aware of issues and, and get a chance to participate in the designing and planning. So kicking off from the user conference, we identified a set of people that, you know, I won't name to participate in an advisory council for our team to help us add to our overall framework approach, some methods, some techniques, and some guidance to help people to transform stories into data stories as it relates to, to equity into data that people can map and analyze a little better than, than what we have today, a little more consistently than what we have today. Very cool. That's awesome. I want to move on to the nonprofit that you founded that we mentioned. In 2017, you started the North Star of GIS, which is People of African Descent in Geography, GIS, and Geosciences. So tell us a bit about the work that they do and your goals with that. Yeah. So when we started, we were this community initiative looking for a name and North Star was just going to be this code, this code name in the meantime, while we came up with something. And so that community included people who were working at S3, but largely included HBCU educators and administrators. It included 
business owners, largely Black business owners who operate in the GIS space. It included some philanthropists who who operate in and around GIS and geography, and and all of us, you know, realizing that that separately we were having some impact, you know, around our our initiatives, and we had seen others have impact around their initiatives, but we needed to to do something that was more about paving a way forward and not sort of just trotting a path because you can always look back and say, oh, I remember so-and-so in that time that he, you know, had an impact or, or that she did something and was very successful. But when they, you know, when they retired, when they moved on, when they advanced in their career, that work stopped. So we wanted to build something that would pave paths. So that ultimately became, well, an incorporated um, profit. We also, you know, sort of saw ourselves as influencing the business of GIS in a lot of ways, the work that that community initiative was doing to research practices for advancing racial justice fed its way back into Esri. So a lot of what we have in, at Esri as our framework came from, you know, research that folks in that North Star community were doing. We also wanted to bring awareness to the visibility to Black people who have been working in geography and GIS for a long time, who just are often, you know, there seem to be so few Black people that people treat it as if there are none. Um, <laughs> and we also wanted to bring to bring more into that space. And how could we do that as now an organization and with a sort of a, a clear vision? And so now we, we have what sometimes feels really corny to say, but this this vision of creating a more racially just world. Like we realized that what we were trying to do is not just influence GIS. We wanted to influence GIS as a community to include racial justice as a, as a primary motivator and, and focus area. Anytime you're doing analysis that relates to people, how can you possibly leave out the systems that harm and ensuring that your results will create benefit? We want to make sure that people who look like us, the full breadth of the, the African, the Black African diaspora, exist in all the spaces that matter so that, and I've had this experience where you're talking about an important issue, 30 to 50 people are in a room virtually. And very often I'm the only person of color. I'm the only black person in particular. And sometimes the topic is, well, how do we address racial injustices that are affecting black people? And it's really difficult for a room like that to begin and to continue and to close out a conversation that would effectively address those issues. So, you know, we know that we we all bring our, our lived experiences together with our, our professional expertise. So when we say a racially just world through a racially just GIS, we recognize that the geography matters. GIS professionals, they matter. And when policies are being designed, implemented, and influenced, geographers are in the room helping to make sure that the grand plans of politicians and, and CEOs actually have a, a real impact on community. And if those groups of geographers don't look like our communities and don't focus on racial justice, then what likely happens is you implement policy that lands on us differently. And sometimes that difference is harmful. So that's sort of our, you know, this grand vision of get more Black people in the space, get more people in the space focusing on racial justice and the world gets better. So we do that work in four connected programs. I'll talk about two of those programs closely together, the telescope and events. So the North Star Telescopes magnifies Black stars and GIS. It's how we increase visibility and make sure that folks get credit for the valuable work that they do, who just happen to look like us. 
just happen to be black and, and very often don't see themselves taking center stage. And when we think about taking center stage, the North Star events program is a, a series of virtual and in-person events that create space for, for black students, educators, entrepreneurs, and professionals, and for anyone who does projects or anyone who, who does work to implement technology that advances racial justice. So we create space for, for all of that. And then there's North Star Guides. So that's us taking, like a, a number of, the, of us have gotten training and certification in diversity and inclusion and equity and, and related topics. And so we take what we know about, you know, advancing these tough conversations about racial justice, not just sort of generic equity conversations, because very often generic equity conversations intentionally step away from race because race is harder and step away from race at intersections of other things because it's, it's harder. And they go to things that are some things that are either more abstract or seem more simple, like gender. But, you know, gender is complex just in a spectrum of gender. And then when you think about gender at the intersection of other things, it, again, it's really complex. But um, so we, we try to provide guidance to make it easy for people to have those conversations. And in some ways that guidance, sometimes that guidance shows up as paid for work services, like fee for services that we do. And there's the North Star Bridge, which is our work to try to make connections between Black people and opportunities in GIS and to be a sustaining platform so that folks can better sustain their success in GIS. We find that a lot of GIS, not GIS, but a lot of diversity and inclusion initiatives operate more like catapults. They fling people into spaces that um, that weren't necessarily designed to nurture them and in some ways bring with them some of the social elements that were designed and are designed sort of to be, to be toxic to people. And then you're off on your own. So you're on, you, you, you got there, you're on a great team, but you're, you know, you're by yourself and like, where do you find great mentorship and how do you get help to be successful over the long run? So the bridge itself is a platform and it's our community connecting and providing resources. And today, one of the things that we do through support of Esri and our other donors, we provide cash grants to Black students who are pursuing geography curriculum at HBCUs. Those are the four programs that we run, and all of them are ways to highlight Black folks, bring more Black folks into GIS, and to get people thinking about how they can use GIS to advance racial justice. That's awesome. Yeah. It's also a perfect segue. So talking about the bridge and even you talking about your experience and all of the reasons why there aren't more people of color and of African descent in the GIS spaces and stuff is part of it, right? Is that it isn't cool for black men to be coders and technology people and nerdy, right? And I feel like that's changing as well. I mean, have you experienced that with your whole life growing up working in the in data and Nick is going to ask you your, his favorite yeah. question next. <laughs> I was related to that. Yeah, Nick, you want to put that question out? Oh yeah, I'm, well, okay. So, so you know, <laughs> you mentioned uh, Doctor Who to us. I love Doctor Who, right? Love it. Um, I, Who doesn't? I What's wrong? Well, yeah, that's that is <laughs> absolutely. But I think that's kind of a challenge. It's kind of fun because it came back, you know, and like it was oh nine something like that. I think you're a bigger fan than I am, which is pretty awesome. So what brought you to Doctor Who? I'm going to ask you a really unfair, who is your favorite? But yeah, what brought you there and who's your favorite? 
Yeah. I, so I'll try to bring, I'll try to like respond to both of those things at the same time. For sure. When I was a kid a long time ago, where did I code? I coded in my room, in the quiet, and I didn't tell anybody. I was excited about it, but you know, I didn't think my sister or my mom or the kids on the block would be excited about it. When I watched Doctor Who, I really thought that I was the only person in the neighborhood watching Doctor Who. <laughs> but as it turned out, like my my sister was also watching Doctor Who. I had no idea. She's two years older than me. <laughs> and she was also watching Doctor Who. And it happened, you know, because um, my mother watched a lot of PBS and she would fall asleep watching TV. I thought my mother was watching Doctor Who, but she's asleep. And now Doctor <laughs> Who is on. Mystery has gone off, but Doctor Who is on. And it was just so captivating to me back then. And I didn't even notice. I thought my sister had left the room or she was doing something else. But, you know, she was very much interested. And I think when it comes to, I want to come back to like my favorites around Doctor Who later. But when it comes to like sort of like this notion that it's not cool to be in tech and like to like things that people think of as, as nerdy. I think, well, that's a consistent theme for kids in America, for sure, regardless of their racial background. And there is this whole blurred community that's now, you know, has stepped forward to say, no, it's super cool. You know, like, I think there's the whole nerd community that says nerding out over things like tech and comics and the like is really cool. And there's a lot of so like now I think it's really cool to be a nerd and I think people recognize that regardless and then the blurred spaces say they do a number of things it's cool to be black and nerdy and you know sometimes we need spaces to be black and nerdy because when you look at Doctor Who and I and I watch Doctor Who a lot but when I look at the history of, of people of color showing up in Doctor Who the first time a black man showed up in Doctor Who, he was essentially someone's enslaved manservant who was happy to be the manservant and sacrifice their lives. The second time a black person showed up in Doctor Who, it was the same guy. And he again played a, <laughs> oh, a no. circus strong man who served a white guy happily and faithfully. And all he was was strength and grunting and sacrificing his body for people and you know other times when people of color show up in doctor who it's, it's like okay they're gonna now on this episode we're gonna talk about racism and colonialism and they and the voices of of that will be the people of color and i just like i, I invite you to watch old doctor who and in fact watch maybe even watch any doctor who and anytime racism and sometimes when sexism comes up or colonialism comes up and colonialism is coming up a lot because we're, there are earth colonies all over the space and time in Doctor Who. Um, mm -hmm. And they try to use that to sort of like talk about those issues. Watch how often the person who says something that's racist is a person of color and then sort of gets punished for it quickly, verbally. It's a thing. But, you know, like in a broader nerd space, you can't talk about that. It's like <laughs> nobody else really cares about that. And and in fact, when they when you talk about it at the same time, you have to sort of educate them about all of the related issues while you're educating them about those things. So so blurred spaces exist to say it's cool and to give people spaces to see that they're not by themselves. And and now it's at a point where they're just like really captivating spaces. And I, I imagine everybody wants to, you know, like wish so many more people wish they were more nerdy, um, again, re regardless of their, their background. I also I had an uncle who was a coder and I just really didn't think about that too much 
what actually made me take coding more seriously, he took me to a bring your your kid to work day. I did not want to be there. I just wanted <laughs> to be doing anything else. And it was at Belltel. And one of the, and it was like, a, it was a room filled with people who were just coding all day. And the person who was the, like the inspiration for me to like really take it more seriously was a guy who was blind. And he wow. had a whole special keyboard set up to code with. And I, this was just not something I expected to encounter. And I'm like, wow, if this person is blind, coding is all writing and, and seeing what you write and seeing what you write come into fruition. So much of it, I thought I thought about it that way. There's other ways you can also like experience the result of code, but that's what I was thinking as a kid. And if he could do this, and if it was so important to him to do this, then I could take this a lot more seriously. I could code more, whether for fun or for other kinds of impact. But yeah, I think largely what happens is there's just this lack of awareness. Who even knows that GIS is a thing? I mean, who's involved in GIS <laughs> and hasn't had to try to explain to friends and family what they do? Yeah, yeah exactly. It's, it's, so I was wait, so glad. It, exactly. It's like when someone, when people started to understand tech better, I just started to say, oh, I work in tech. Please yeah, don't yeah, ask it's me what I do. <laughs> please don't, please don't ask me to go further, right? Because like tech right, people right. understand, but people don't understand GIS. So similarly, like, when you find Black people in GIS, I hear them very often say, oh, I have a non-traditional path into GIS because a lot of geographers have had family who were interested mm -hmm. in geography or GIS or showed them how to get into those spaces. But while there are lots of people who sort of bumped into GIS, I want to say that that's a bigger part of the story for the Black professionals that I've encountered. It's much more likely that a Black person bumps into GIS while they're already pursuing curriculum or pursuing a career. They're well on their way in a career and then they they just they bump into it. So I think awareness is is a bigger issue. And and we don't necessarily think about this, but when we're spreading the word about GIS, we're sort of we're creating what the next generation looks like. And so by doing it just through our, our regular networks, we're just gonna continue to to have it look the way it looks. So if we want it to be a space that more people who look like me or or from other underrepresented groups are involved, then we have to like invest differently in how we promote it. We've got to not just make tech available to schools, but find those schools that are in those predominantly underrepresented communities and just invest in making sure that those folks know that this is a cool, interesting, exciting field to be in that, that cuts across everything, you know? Yeah. yeah. And my favorite, I'm not going to, I don't have a favorite. I I don't I have a favorite. Not, I mean, Nick's like ready. He's like, what is it? Yeah. What is it? That's yeah. always been waiting for. <laughs> you know, like I, I came up on, I came up on, um, on Tom Baker, right? So I, oh, I came yeah, up yeah. on Tom Baker and he was a cool, you know, pretty interesting Doctor Who in a lot of ways. I really liked the first, the, I don't know the number, um, Ecclestein. I'm saying oh, yeah, wrong. Yeah, yeah, Chris Eccleston. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I liked him. So he, he only got yeah. a year. Yeah. yeah, like he only got a year though. I don't know what that was about. Certainly, Dave was great. Like, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. th there's been just so many great Doctor Who's, but my current favorite is, um, I like the second season of the 13th Doctor um, mm. and the team around them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's something about the first season that was like really slow. And then the, the last season, the most recent season has like been kind of, I don't know, the stories have been weird, but I do like the Lady Doctor, but 
if I if I was pressed though, and I want you to really think about this, Nick, like the most exciting doctor to step <laughs> on the screen is the black woman. They gave her yeah. such a, a yeah, bold yeah, right. entrance. Yeah. Like her, her interest is so bold. Like she's exciting every scene that she's in. She's just not in, you know, that yeah, many. Not. Yeah, not nearly scenes. enough. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That, you're totally right, though. I totally agree. That was... yeah, they gave her like really strong stories and a really great character. And I just could not great understand character. why we were spending yeah. so much time with with this couple on the, um, you know, the yeah, episode where I she know. gets introduced. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I thought, well, okay, I guess we'll never see her again. I was wrong. And that was cool. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So yeah, hopefully Laura has to step around. in here soon because we're going to... I, I really was thinking about <laughs> yeah. it. I'm like, when do, I, when do I pull the plug on this conversation? Oh, I know. It. I know it. Yeah, no, I'm excited to see where <laughs> it goes. What? Too. That's the best part about Doctor Who. There's always a new person. The next one's coming up. Pretty awesome too. So I'm excited. I'm excited to see where it goes. Yeah, the next person has been awesome. announced and I think it's going to be really interesting. I didn't want to know. But um, the news got me. The spoiler reached uh, me. Uh, yeah, see, I didn't want to say it unless, yeah, yeah, I, I heard it too. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah, we'll we won't say here. You guys can look it up. After talk. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> we are sadly at the end of our time, though. Um, is there anything else you wanted to talk about, Clinton, that we didn't talk to you about yet? I probably. But, um, <laughs> but, but, who, but who could say? Yeah, I think just I want to see more geographers, more GIs professionals, not, not just tacking on oh, let's address the systems of oppression and the systems that we're working on at the end. But just, you know, realizing that that all the systems that you're trying to interact with and make more healthy are being, they're under attack. They're under attack from these other systems that we call systems of oppression. So study those simultaneously and make sure that you're, that, hey, if, if you're missing race, gender, ethnicity, socioeconomics, intersections of those in your study, you're probably missing a lot about people and the systems that are that are harming them. And when you look around the room that you're in, if you don't see people who are from other racial backgrounds, other genders, other socioeconomic backgrounds, as comfortable as it may feel to be able to talk to them and hang out with them after work and talk about things like Doctor Who or whatever else you're interested in, you're missing something really valuable from your your team experience and from the the work products that you produce. Awesome. Thank yeah. you so much for sharing all your insights with us and all of your Doctor Who knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're looking forward to seeing how all of this grows and people start bringing this really into heart and into their practices. Can you now tell us where people can get in touch with you? Yeah, people can find me on LinkedIn. I use Clinton G. Johnson on LinkedIn. They can also find out information about North Star using GIS North Star on any platform, Patreon, LinkedIn, the internet, GISNorthStar.org, <laughs> Instagram, Twitter, all of it. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. That's our show. Thank you, Clinton, for joining us today. Please be sure to check us out each and every Friday and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Bye. See you, everybody. <laughs>